This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Following massive handouts from the feds during the pandemic, state governments remain in decent fiscal health. Keeping it that way will require an appetite for reform. In a new paper, Cato's Mark Joffe describes some cost-saving strategies for state fiscal health going forward. It is probably surprising to a lot of people to hear that post-pandemic state fiscal health uh, in general has been pretty good. Yeah, states were on an enormous sugar high. First, uh, they got hundreds of billions of dollars of federal aid. And then it turned out that the uh, lower tax collections turned into higher tax collections. Everyone thought there was going to be a massive long-term recession, which would take down state finances. And in fact, quite the opposite happened, especially in states that had high progressive income tax rates with the market going up and with um, company profits being very strong and uh, higher end employees making a lot of money. The money just kept rolling into state coffers uh, well into 2022. But things are turning uh, back to reality now. One of the concerns, and I think you and I actually discussed this, was post-pandemic as money kept rolling in and as states, as you mentioned, got this huge infusion of cash from the, the federal government, that states would foolishly turn those cash windfalls into long-term obligations. Did that happen? There's been some of that. I think a bigger problem is just lack of fiscal discipline around using the money effectively. So in New York and California, both states failed to pay down their federal unemployment loans. And so in California, we, because uh, I'm a Californian, we are stuck with $20 billion of federal unemployment debt, which will have to be paid off by employers. So that was something that could have been paid back with ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act money. And instead, California made a lot of one-time, you know, quote-unquote investments in things like homeless housing, which turns out to be much more expensive than private sector parties are able to, to do in the normal market. So we paid for a lot of overpriced supportive housing, and we're stuck with a $20 billion unemployment bill. So for states coming back to reality, when you say back to reality, what does that mean? Things are sort of leveling off. The feds aren't kicking in giant piles of money anymore. Is that basically what you're describing? Definitely leveling off, and it's going to vary by state. Some states, um, you know, especially in the in the South and West, are doing quite well. But the states that have high progressive income tax rates, like New York, New Jersey, California, uh, they are in a difficult situation right now because there's been a big drop in revenue relative to 2022, and not a lot of uh, appetite for cutting spending. So, for states that are uh, having difficulties or feeling the pinch, what are some avenues that they ought to consider to trim spending? Well, a lot of these states have had a drop in population. And so some of the facilities that they've built for a larger you know, universe of clients uh, now are no longer being fully utilized. And you know, two examples of that are public colleges and K through 12 schools. So you have cases in both of those categories where there are very underutilized facilities. And the logical thing to do, the thing that would normally happen in the private sector is some of those would either go out of business or they would be consolidated with other institutions. And that's something that, that states have a hard time doing, states and local governments, I should say, have a hard time doing. But it's 
the most logical response to lower population and less money coming in. But the political constraints there are very difficult. The people who are in any given area would probably be pretty resistant to that sort of change, yes? Yes, the unionized public employees and often, especially in the case of K-12, through the local parents uh, will organize to support the you know, the continuance of a school, even if it has, you know, say only 200 kids in it. You might have a school that originally was built for four or 500 kids. Only 200 kids are left, but the local parents, no, you can't close this facility. And they, um, you know, they get something of a veto because if they can mobilize a number of people coming to um, the school board meeting and drown out the others who might be for more fiscal discipline, then they can win the day. In other areas, uh, one thing that you mentioned is pensions. You live in California, you know, for public employees have relatively fabulous program in Kentucky. The pension program here is virtually ironclad for a lot of people. Uh, but there are benefits associated with state pensions that are able to be cut or constrained or changed in a way that works out better for taxpayers. Right. Just to build that out a little, California is known for the California rule, which applies in about a dozen states. I don't think it's ever really been passed as a formal piece of legislation, certainly not in California. But essentially what it does is it guarantees public employees the pension formula that they were hired at or the highest pension formula that existed during their time of service. So, for example, a police officer might have been hired in California in the early 1990s and was guaranteed 3% of income per year of employment up to 30 years with a retirement age of 55. In 1999, that was changed to 50. So they would continue to accrue the 3%, but they could cash in as early as um, age 50. Now, we wanted it in California, it was realized that that was becoming unaffordable and a pension reform was needed. But instead of bringing those uh, employees who had been hired back in the early 90s back to the 3% of 55 formula, the formula could only be applied to new employees because because of the California rule, they were guaranteed that level of pension benefit. So that doesn't normally apply to what are called other post-employment benefits, which are mostly taking the form of retiree medical insurance. So states do have the flexibility to adjust those benefits. And that's one of the suggestions I'm making in this new paper, that they should look at, for example, replacing a defined health retirement benefit with a retiree savings account. So while the employee is, re- is working, that employee would make deposits into an account. It could potentially be matched by the, um, the public employer. And then at the time of retirement, those savings could be withdrawn and used to pay for health insurance premiums on, say, the Affordable Care Act um, exchange or just directly through a private uh, insurer. We've talked about this as well, uh, changing gears a little bit, and that is the fact that the workforce post-COVID has adjusted somewhat and large metros uh, even middle, mid-sized and some smaller metros have pretty expensive transit systems that are being used in even smaller numbers than they were before the pandemic. So those uh, programs have their own interest groups as well. But what would be the most 
coherent way to save on those programs? Well, some states take gas tax revenue and other revenue that's normally dedicated to roads and they move it into transit. And that's, that's a big feature of, uh, of California. So a lot of toll revenue, for example, in the Bay Area goes into transit. Your money is siphoned off from the you know, huge gas tax that we have in California, which is, I think, uh, something like 53 cents per gallon. And that, that money is then diverted into both operating costs for public transit as well as construction costs for new transit. And, you know, in the study, I look at the performance of new construction. And in many, many cases, you have situations where the projects for, say, extending a subway line go way over budget, and they were already, you know, slated to cost a lot of money, but they go way over budget, and then they take a lot longer to build than expected. So one state-assisted project that exists out in California, not far from where the 49ers play, is the um, extension of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, or BART, through um, Silicon Valley's uh, San Jose and into Santa Clara. That was originally expected to cost $4.7 billion for six miles of additional subway. So that's almost a billion dollars a mile. But recently, we found that the federal government estimates that the cost will be closer to $12.2 billion. And the project will take uh, over 12 years to complete. So the anticipated completion date is 2036 or 2037. So, you know, over $2 billion a mile for something that's not going to open <laughs> for some of our lifetimes. Some of us will be quite old when it's, uh, when it's available. And not many people will ride it. The federal government estimates that the daily ridership in that uh, new subway extension will only be 32,900 people per day. So you start to have to wonder, you know, is, is siphoning hundreds of millions of dollars of gas tax revenue into a project like this really a good use of, uh, of state money? Yeah, and, and the disconnect between the people paying for it and the people who are likely to be benefiting from it is pretty big. Yes, uh, definitely. The uh, you know <laughs> average uh, commuter, uh, many people are super commuters in California because of high housing prices. They may have to drive 50 or 100 miles to their work and they may not have the option of remote work because they may be doing a, you know, a service job where they have to work directly with uh, customers. So if they're driving 50 or 100 miles from a place that's outside of the transit shed, they're not benefiting from it. And instead, their gas taxes are being taken to benefit from you know, benefit urban residents. So uh, let's talk about this broadly. States have liabilities. They commit themselves to long-term liabilities by uh, bonding debt. And it's a small fraction of what the federal government or federal taxpayers owe, but it's still pretty significant. It can still hamper the ability of states to engage in the kind of spending they would like to, to be nimble in taking revenues and, and, and moving them from one place to another. Broadly, what's the impact of that? How do you evaluate the situation with regard to overall state liabilities? Well, first, just to amplify a point that you made, my colleague Chris Edwards has found that state debt is really, really constrained compared to federal debt. Obviously, it's going to vary by state, but even the most indebted states um, look much better than the federal government. And that's largely because there are tools in place that enforce fiscal discipline, like balanced budget requirements that don't exist at the, at the federal level. 
And the bond market. We can't leave out the bond market. Although the bond market does fail to uh, discipline the federal government. The federal government seems to be able to borrow you know, unlimited amounts of money. Although part of that is because the Federal Reserve is often in there competing with um, with bond investors as well. But still, you know, there's the municipal bond market is about $4 trillion in size. Some of that actually is not government debt. Some of it is uh, for nonprofit organizations that are allowed to um, issue bonded debt through public conduits. So the actual state and local debt might be closer to $3.2 trillion. And that's, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of money. And it's important to understand that that is not uniformly divided around the country. There are states that are much more indebted than than others. And often those uh, those are states that are ones that have less attractive revenue potential, like, for example, Illinois. You know, Illinois is not a state that can really look forward to, you know, huge influxes of revenue, given the fact that it's facing declining population with me- medium and high income earners, you know, leaving to go to Florida, Texas, and elsewhere. So carrying a lot of debt is not really a great idea for states, especially in an environment that, unlike the 20 teens, is one where we're seeing you know normalized interest rates. So again, if you're if you're able to borrow at two percent, you know it starts to make sense that well, inflation is two percent. You're borrowing at two percent. You know, maybe that sort of works. But you know now we're often looking at you know uh, Treasury interest rates of four percent or higher, and so that really you know reduces the uh, value proposition of excessive borrowing. Are there states that have, and I'm not talking about states that have turned things around. I'm talking about states that have con- seemed to have consistently done a pretty good job of uh, managing debt, of making sure that their public outlays are for current taxpayers, uh, and making sure that their their public sector doesn't grow too much. Utah and Idaho are states that have done a really good job. You know, we work a lot with the uh, state policy network think tanks there and some elected officials. And there's just a lot of focus on fiscal responsibility there. You know, I was talking to folks in in Idaho about Medicaid last year, and they were really concerned not only about the state cost of Medicaid, but the federal cost of Medicaid as well, because Medicaid is a state-federal combined program where the federal government often pays more than half of the of the cost of Medicaid. So it's great that, you know, states like that are concerned not only about their own fiscal well-being, but also how they're affecting the nation's fiscal well-being. Whereas in California, a lot of times a project, like a transit project, will be justified because, hey, you know, this is going to cost $12 billion, but we can get $6 billion of federal money into the project. And that's going to be great for our stakeholders here in California, not thinking that their stakeholders are also taxpayers and future taxpayers who are struggling to pay off $34 trillion of federal debt. So there are definitely states in the interior part of the of the West. I think you know, Florida and, and uh, to a lesser extent, Texas are also very fiscally responsible states. I think Texas has more of a problem with controlling its property taxes. But of course, they, you know, they're great in terms of their income tax. And I think the sales tax is lower than in California. But still, there are definitely states that are that are better than New York and California, and they have been attracting an inflow of residents as a result. Mark Joffe is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. His new paper is State Fiscal Health and Cost-Saving Strategies, available today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. 